0: Let's come to God's word. So tonight's passage is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, reading until chapter 13, verse 4. Uh, this could be found on page 970 in your church Bibles. So that's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. I have been a fool, you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Oh, and what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here, for the third time, I am ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go, and sent the brother with him? Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there, be, there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of their impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, We will live with him by the power of God. Amen.
1: Thank you, Candice, for reading. Uh, As usual, it really helped you to have the Bible open in front of you as we go through uh, tonight. And also just on the back of the service sheet you got on the way in, there's an outline that shows you uh, where we're going. Uh, Let's pray. And let's ask the Lord uh, for his help. Our Father, we need your help. We need your help to understand what your word says. Uh, But we also need your help to change. And we know that um, we want to change. We want to become like your son, the Lord Jesus. Um, And yet, Lord, we find so often that our hearts are resistant Uh, to you and to what you want to do in our lives and so we pray by your spirit you would humble us help us to receive your word gladly tonight and would you change us uh, by your spirit uh, into the image of your son in jesus name amen what motivates a christian minister what is their motivation why do they do what they do This is an important question. It's important for those of us in leadership in a church. It's important for all of us who sit under Christian leadership in a local church. And it's important for for discerning leadership from afar. Perhaps if we're going to another church, another location, moving house, we want to know what Christian leadership is like. What motivates a Christian minister is an important question. In Corinth, Paul saw that there were lots of wrong motivations in play. Here's the big three. Uh, Prosperity, power, and popularity. And of course, we still see this today. So prosperity, yes, for the motivation for some is to gain wealth. It's a key motivator of Paul's opponents, the super-apostles, Paul speaks of them early on in the letter as peddlers of God's word, chapter 2. It's sort of rent a sermon, if you like. Um, You want me to speak at your event? Well, that will be £1,000 plus expenses. That's how it works. Sadly, money is still very much a motivation today. The so-called prosperity gospel is very prosperous, hence the name, Uh, but for those who preach it... We can see that across the world. But let's be honest, you don't need to have money to be motivated by money, do you? That motivation can rest in the heart of the poor trainee associates as much as it can in the mega-rich, mega-church leader. So prosperity. What about power? That's another motivation. It's another one that drives the super-apostles. They're all about impressive power ministry. They're bold, strong, confident leaders. Confident in themselves, that is. They boast of their impressive achievements, this many converts, this supernatural, spectacular ministry, this successful project, this many conference appearances, this many followers on Instagram. They do this to build an image of themselves as super apostles. They claim to hold the same authority as the true apostles, but they're even better and at the same time, they ridicule Paul's weakness, his physical unimpressiveness, his unsophisticated Bible teaching just so ordinary, and they do this so that their power and influence grows, they emphasise themselves, and they downplay Paul, and they do that so that his gospel and him are sidelined. That is also that they can gain control over the church and to serve their own interests. They want power. And sadly, power is a motivation for many uh, still today. So, prosperity, power, one more, popularity, to gain friends. And this is the tactic preach a message that is popular in the culture of the day, preach a Jesus who is palatable. They play down Jesus' teaching on the seriousness of sin. They remove the need for repentance. That's too unpopular. No one's going to go for that in this modern culture, they say. And of course, in doing so, they must therefore minimize the need for the cross and the atoning work of Jesus. To focus on that is just to remind people of their sin, and we don't need that anymore, do we? That will never work. See, things haven't changed. They were like that in Corinth. They're like that today. The desire to be popular will make the minister change his message to suit the culture's values. But Paul says that will lead to a different Jesus with a different spirit and a different gospel. It leads people astray. Prosperity, power, and popularity three wicked motivations for Christian ministers. But what motivates the authentic Christian minister? Why do they do what they do? What drives them? Well, Paul's answer is love. Love for God. They act as Paul says they do in verse 19, in the sight of God and they speak in Christ. They love God. But also their love for their people. That's the motivation of the authentic Christian minister, They love people. Now the super apostles have been telling the Corinthians that Paul doesn't really love them. That he's after their money, that he's too harsh with them, that his call for them to repent shows this. They'd really be better off if they cast Paul aside, they say. And the Corinthians have started to listen, or at least some of them have, There's still a significant minority who are being pulled away by these super-apostles. And it's them that Paul has in view in these last few chapters of his letter. He wants to reassure them that he loves them. And that everything he has done and everything that he has said in this letter and in the previous letters has been out of love for them. Even, and perhaps especially, the things that they don't like. All of it has been motivated by a deep love for them. So, what's the motivation of the authentic Christian minister? Well, in the words of the 80s pop sensations madness, it must be love, love, love. That's what we're going to see. Let's turn to it. Chapter 12, verse 11 to 18. So authentic Christian ministry is driven by love, which means, first of all, it means gladly spending yourself for the souls of your church. This is verse 11 to 18. Now, Paul's been speaking in the previous verses, verses 1 to 10, to show that he's got all the credentials of an authentic apostle. That is not what the Corinthians have been led by the super-apostles to expect. Paul's been speaking of his suffering and his persecution and his weakness. That's what true Christian ministry looks like, he says. Looks like the life of Jesus Christ. Faithful Bible teaching in the midst of rejection and hardship. It is, in fact, how God shows his power, Paul says. He works through weakness. Now, Paul knows that it's foolish to boast of these things, and he's referring to that at the beginning of verse 11, I've been a fool. But he's been doing it, therefore, to make a point. To so they should have understood that if you were to boast in what was authentic, well, you'd boast in this kind of stuff. You'd boast in weaknesses, not the stuff that the super apostles boast in. But then as he's been boasting of his sufferings and his weaknesses... He doesn't want them to draw the wrong conclusion that the signs of God's power weren't at work in his ministry. They were. See, Paul says that I'm nothing, I'm nothing, but God still made me an apostle, and that's not nothing. Verse 11. I was not at all inferior to these super-apostles, even though I'm nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, along with signs and wonders and mighty works. To his weak-looking work of preaching that resulted in their conversions, it was accompanied by miracles, which Jesus had said that his authentic apostles would do, and that they did do everywhere that they planted churches. All the signs were there. This was an authentic apostolic ministry. But there was one thing that Paul didn't do in Corinth that he did do elsewhere. It's in verse 13. For in what were you less favoured than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Paul didn't take any money from the Corinthians. He did it in other places, but he didn't do it here. He didn't burden them by asking for that financial support. And he won't do it next time when he comes either. Paul won't take their money, but why? Well, verse 16 reveals what other people say was the reason. It says that that they were saying that he was deceitful and manipulative. The super apostles say of him that, well, Paul didn't take your money when he was with you, And he did that to sort of make himself seem all pious and holy, but that was all part of a big scam. Later on, he sent Titus and the other brothers to you to make a collection for the church in Jerusalem. And they were alleging that Paul would, what he would do was just skim off the top of that collection. That was how he gained their finances, that's how he gained their cash. It was all a big con, they said. And so Paul urges them to reconsider his character and in particular, his motive. He wasn't skimming off the top and he didn't take their money, but why? It was because he loves them. He loves them as a parent loves their children. That's why he didn't take their money. He says so. For I seek not what is yours, your money, But you, for children are not bound to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And then there's this most astonishing and moving statement, verse 15. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Here we see the heart of Paul the pastor and the heart of any authentic Christian minister. Paul most gladly spends all his energies and resources for them, for their eternal souls, because he loves them like a dad loves his kids. And ironically, they've loved him less for this But it's because he's loved them more, not less, that he's done it. He's not in it for the money. He spends himself for them freely, simply because he loves them. Just, indeed, as the Lord Jesus Christ has done for his church. You know those uh, sticks of rock that you get at the seaside. I don't know if you get them anymore. They've probably been cancelled for having too much sugar in, I suspect. But they have those words running through uh, the middle of them. Cut them in half and you'll see Brighton or Blackpool or North Berwick or wherever um, you've been. If you could cut open the heart of an authentic Christian minister, then this is what you would see. These words, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. It runs right through the middle of their heart. And isn't that different? Isn't that different, of course, from the leadership of the world and the leadership of the worldly church that is in it for what they can get? Authentic Christian minister spends themselves for the souls of the people under their care. Their energies, their resources, their thoughts, their time, their lives... Are given over, they are spent. And they don't do it resentfully. Did you notice that? They don't do it as if people will then owe them and should pay them back. No, it's done most gladly, most gladly in love. That's our first point. Second point, verse 19 to 21. How is that love, how is it actually expressed? Well, Paul continues, and he says here that love means to build up your church by calling people to repentance. So why is Paul saying what he's been saying? Well, it's not in defense of himself, verse 19. It's not so he can feel better or he can feel self-justified or keep his reputation. It's not about him ultimately. It's for them. It's for their sake because he loves them. And because he fears for them. So he knows that he's been appointed by God as God's apostle and that he must do everything that he can to keep his relationship with them so that he can build up their faith. It is in the sight of God, he says, that we've been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Now, as a culture, we've moved away from a biblical understanding of what love actually looks like. In our culture, love means acceptance, it seems. If you love me, you'll accept me as I am. I hear that a lot. It's the sort of thing that you hear all the time. Now, of course, there's a right sense to that um, when it's pushing back against prejudice or against judgmentalism. Um, Too often often we're not accepting of others because they're simply different uh, to us. So in that sense, that phrase has a kind of helpfulness. But, But we all know, of course, that that refrain is really saying more than that. If you love me, you'll accept me as I am, is a claim to personal righteousness. It means you can't call me out on anything that I'm always justified in my words and my actions. And in that sense, of course, it's a prideful attitude. Love must mean absolute acceptance of all that I say and do, regardless. So you'll hear it spoken with that kind of freight, both by those in the world and, again, in the worldly church. Now, we might think, well, that kind of sentiment, that's a modern phenomenon, and it certainly has become popular recently to speak like that. But I wonder perhaps that that idea is something that's more fundamental, more fundamental to the human condition. It's less culturally bound perhaps than we think. Because it seems that the Corinthians, they have something going on like that as well. They've bought into something similar. Throughout all of his letters, Paul has been calling them to repentance he challenged them on areas of sin. He's shown them the seriousness of their offences before God, and, and that, it seems, has been exploited by the super-apostles. They, they say something like, look, if Paul really loved you, he'd accept you as you are. See, the fact that he keeps challenging you, you on your sin, well, that means that he doesn't really love you at all, that kind of thing. And you can see why that would appeal. That appeals to our sense of self-righteousness in our hearts. It's easily believable. We want to believe it. Because then, well, we can dismiss whatever the person says. and We don't have to change anything. But love that builds up, says Paul, is love that calls people to repentance. An authentic Christian minister loves his church... By preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. It's in chapter 4. And he lovingly says, Look, come on, let's repent of sin and let's live under his lordship. And we can see that in the next few verses. In verse 20 and 21, Paul's going to remind them of two areas of sin. And there are two areas that he's repeatedly challenged them on, both through his visits, but also through his letters. They come up again and again in 1 Corinthians and uh, 2 Corinthians. As yet, some of them haven't repented. And he's fearful for them, fearful that when he comes for the third time uh, to them, that he'll have to come with discipline uh, rather than encouragement. And here's the two areas. Uh, they're on the handout. Social sins and sexual sins first of all social sins this is verse 20 for I fear that perhaps when I come I may may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish that perhaps there may be quarrelling jealousy anger hostility slander Gossip, conceit, and disorder. These are social sins. They're internal strife and factionalism. They're a divided church. And in part, they're divided because of the divisive influence of the super apostles. But we know, don't we, that the deepest cause of divisiveness is the divisive tendencies of the human heart. We're just like this, we, we like to pick fights, we grow jealous and angry about others, we love gossip and slander, it makes us feel so powerful to be in the know about others. See, this is how the world is, and it must not be so in Jesus' church, says Paul. It stops us being built up, and eventually it will tear us down, as it has done many a church. If we're harbouring any anger or bitterness or jealousy, or we've become a gossip, bad mouthing others, we must repent. It cannot be in Jesus' church. And Paul says this, and he does so in love, beloved, to build them up. So that's social sins. Next it's sexual sins, verse twenty one. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practised. Christian orthodoxy on sexuality is that sexual activity is only appropriate in the context of marriage between one husband and one wife. Now that view is unpopular, as we know. But it was just as unpopular in 1st century Corinth as it is in 21st century Scotland. The Corinthians lived in a highly sexually permissive culture, just as it is today, and the Corinthian church stood out as odd, and it was ridiculed for its conservative morality. And that made it a tough environment in which to remain sexually pure. It really did. It was costly. There were all the temptations that there are. But at the same time, people thought you were foolish for avoiding them. Now just notice here that Paul is not addressing the wider culture. He's speaking to the church. So his concern here is not so much to reform morality in Corinth, although I'm sure he would be glad if it was reformed. He's speaking to believers who have allowed sexual sin to go unrepented of in their lives. It's a cause for grief, for mourning. He fears another painful visit where he'll have to deal again with this issue. Because he loves them, he cannot but call them to repent of these things. Now, we need to heed this for ourselves. It would be very easy, wouldn't it, to look out there and see impurity, sexual immorality and sensuality you wouldn't have to go very far but let's look in here among us in our relationships in the privacy of our own homes and in our own minds and hearts are we blameless no we're not are we repentant see that's the opportunity that we have now tonight As we hear God's word. And it may be that, like the Corinthians, this is something that we've heard before, perhaps several times, but we've never dealt with it. Don't put it off any longer. Paul really loves the Corinthians. And because of that, he's prepared to say unpopular truths. He's just like a good parent, isn't he? A parent who sees his kids in danger of ruining their lives. And so like a good parent, in love, he pleads with them to repent from social sins and from sexual sins. And from any other sin that might be at work in their church. That's what an authentic minister does. That's what love looks like. And he's prepared to repeat those things when necessary for a second time and for a third time. See, far from love equaling acceptance, it's his love that means he does not accept that sin remains unrepented of. His aim is to build up the church by calling for repentance. Repentance. Now briefly, final point for this evening, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 13. This point really kind of carries on from the last, but it really pushes it slightly further. See, Paul knows that if there's a hardening of hearts in these areas, if there's a lack of repentance, then his next visit to them really won't go very well at all. Now a a good builder... Uh, carries around in his toolbox both a trowel and a hammer. Paul wants to come with the trowel. He wants to come in gentleness to build up. But he fears that he's going to have to come with the hammer in his hand and tear down those who are willfully unrepentant. And he will do that if he has to. Now we might think that Paul is harsh to suggest that this might happen, but just look at chapter 13. Verse 1, it's not as if he hasn't given them fair warning. This is now the third time that he is coming to them. And there's more than enough evidence. He quotes the Old Testament there, the Old Testament principle of establishing things on the evidence of two or three witnesses. I've been three times. It's not like there's not evidence that this has been an issue and that you've been spoken to uh, before. There's been ample warning, multiple chances, much grace. And he goes on that in coming to discipline, Paul will be acting in line with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's carry on from verse 2. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. It's a warning. He warns them that as he speaks God's word, Jesus Christ speaks. The risen Jesus, who lives by God's power, will be at work among them. See, the weakness of Christ in his crucifixion did not mean that he had no power. It looked like that, but it didn't mean it, did it? Because he rose from the dead, and he lives today. And today he rules his church through his preached word. He is powerful among you. Paul himself is weak in Christ. But the very power of God that raised Jesus from the dead will be at work when he comes to deal with them. This is what it means. Ultimately, it will not be Paul that they defy and have to deal with, but the risen Lord Jesus himself who speaks through his apostle and the words of his apostle Now, how is this applied to us in this way? That the authentic Christian minister, out of love, must warn people that when they've heard God's word taught to them and they do not repent, that it is the risen Lord Jesus that they are accountable to. That they risk being dealt with by him See, the loving, faithful minister does not say to his church, repent or you'll be in trouble with me. He says, repent because the risen Lord Jesus is powerful among you, that we answered to him. And that's what this is saying. How do we apply this to us? Let's apply this just in three ways um, as we close. First of all, to those who who have a ministry position of leadership, um, whether you're an elder or perhaps a small group leader or evangelistic ministry leader or children's ministry leader or really any other um, leadership role in a church, let's reflect on how this motivation of love should shape your ministry. Do we really love people as Paul loves people here? Will you gladly spend yourself and be spent for others? Will you graciously say the hard things, calling people to repentance? Will you point people to the living power and presence of Jesus Christ? If you'll love people like that, well, it's likely that you'll find some kind of rejection. Some kind of difficulty. It happened to the Apostle Paul and it will happen to us, but this is the way that the church is built and the way that the love of God is authentically expressed. Does our ministry look like that? As for those who are in leadership of some kind, and for all of us, all of us. Uh, We all sit under Christian ministers, we all do that. Um, Even the elders, we sit under the eldership of us as a a corporate eldership. Now, as people like that, first of all, I think this should just make us grateful for godly leaders. I found myself, as I've looked at this this week, just really grateful for godly people who have exhibited this kind of love for me. In the way that Paul has described and for me, as I'm reflecting on that, and for all of us as we reflect on that, and the, great, the gratitude that we have for people who have really loved us in this uh, difficult way, well, we need to then, again, think and consider our own hearts. Are we really humble to receive this kind of leadership? This is something that we all need to grow. We need to, to grow in humility, humility to listen, to take it seriously, and humility to repent. And it may well be that some of the things that Paul touches on here, these are just things that we need to deal with now. Could be social sins, could be sexual sins, could be other sins. Will we humbly listen? Will we recognise that the risen Jesus is Lord? And will we bow the knee to him? So that's for all of us. Then finally, we might also think about what it would look like if we were to move somewhere else. Um, Somewhere else in the city, perhaps, somewhere else further afield. Maybe you're a student, you'll be going to a new job or um, going somewhere else away for work or something like that. And at some point, most of us will move around um, and be in a different place. What kind of Christian leader or minister should I look for in a local church? Well, the answers are here, aren't they? What what motivates them is so important. If I see motivation of prosperity or of power or of popularity, and I can spot that because they've made the message just like what the world wants to hear, well, I should run a mile, shouldn't I? But when I see real love like this, see that this is what drives them, Now we need to see that precisely because there's no doubt that every minister will say that they love their people. Is it love expressed as Paul describes here? Is it authentic? Because that will look like someone who gladly spends their lives for the souls of their church. It will look like someone who builds up the church by calling people to repentance. And it will look like someone who graciously and patiently and repeatedly warns the church of the power of the living Lord Jesus Christ who's at work among them. That's how you spot authentic ministry. Now may we be like that. May we submit to leadership like that. And may we, when we move on, find leadership like that. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we thank you for, first of all, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he was willing to spend himself for us, to pour out his life, to rescue us for our souls. Thank you for his gracious call to repentance and faith in him. And thank you for his ongoing work among his people. Thank you that the Lord Jesus is at work among us tonight uh, here in Edinburgh. We thank you, too, for the example of the Apostle Paul and his great love of the church in Corinth. We're thankful for leaders like that who, who, who have um, exercised leadership over us. We're grateful for them. We pray that you would bless them uh, in their ongoing ministry. And we pray, Lord God, that you would give us humble hearts, that for those of us in leadership, we've become the kind of leaders uh, that you would want us to be, that our motivations will be that of love, and not self-interest. And we pray too that we would have the humility to submit to godly leadership, to hear what your word says, and to repent where we need to. Lord, if there's any here tonight who are struggling with the sins that have been mentioned in this passage, we pray that you would help them to turn from them and turn to Christ and come to know again the forgiveness that he offers and that by your spirit you would change them To become like your son, the Lord Jesus. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name.